Welcome to the Manly Saints Project with me, Hugh Hunter. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the link in the show notes to buy me a beer. And if you enjoy the podcast as audio or video, please consider giving me a rating wherever you are. It helps a lot. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet the gentleman adventurer who became a hermit at the end of the world. Name, Viscount Charles Eugène de Foucault de Pombrion, Brother Marie Alberic, Brother Charles of Jesus. Life, 1858 to 1916. Status, Saint. Feast, December 1st. In the early summer of 1883, Viscount Charles Eugène de Foucault de Pombrion went missing. He was last seen in French North Africa, in the city of Algiers. One morning, Charles, bad boy aristocrat, veteran, hedonist, atheist, had strolled into the Jewish quarter of the city. He had gone into the home of the alchemist, Rabbi Mordecai Abisarur. After that, he had not been seen again. Before the authorities could begin to search for the vanished Viscount, and also before the authorities could start to wonder whether his disappearance was linked to the crazy plan that Viscount Charles de Foucault had pitched them on some time before, Rabbi Mordecai hurried out of the city headed west. He was accompanied by another man, a fellow rabbi from Russia, so it was said. Although, anyone who looked carefully at the second rabbi would note that under the man's flowing robes, his face did bear a striking resemblance to that of the missing aristocrat. So yes, the authorities would soon figure out. The disappearance had been linked to Charles de Foucault's mad plan. They had deemed it too impractical and dangerous. Charles had responded by making it even more impractical and more dangerous, and then he had initiated it without their help. Charles de Foucault was on his way to become one of the last great gentleman adventurers of the 19th century. No one could doubt his credentials as a gentleman. His family was old. When St. Louis had led his knights on crusade, Charles's aristocratic ancestors had been there, fighting alongside the king. When St. Joan of Arc had stood for France, Charles's ancestors had stood with her. When the French Revolution had turned against the church, Charles's ancestors had been high in the church, unintimidated to the end. Now, though, such dramatic faith seemed old-fashioned. Passé. Young Charles de Foucault was born in 1858, into a France that was being carried along by science and progress. Everything was getting better, from organization to communication to transport. And material progress meant moral progress, 
For example, as the journalist Norman Angel would famously explain, economic changes meant that Europe would never again be plunged into a major war. It was scientifically impossible. The great Christian men of Charles's family, then, would find no place in this new world. Although Charles de Foucault was raised Catholic, he had lost his faith as a teenager. By then his parents had died, and he was being raised by his grandfather. Charles's schooling made it clear that no one could really agree on religious questions, so there was no point in taking them very seriously. Probably, religious disagreements would fade away in the light of the new science. And, as Charles would later write to a friend, there was something else, too. Already, the church struggled to express a positive vision of manliness. Praying had become something for women and children. A man had to face up to the truth that there was nothing apart from this material universe, alone. Fortunately for Charles de Foucault, facing the emptiness of the universe was easier when you were rich and well-connected. There were girls to chase. There was culture to take in. There was food to eat and alcohol to drink. Aristocrats joined the army, and Charles did too. He was going to be a cavalry officer. But even that didn't need to be taken too seriously. Charles became known at officer school for getting into trouble and finding ways to live the good life. One friend at the time wrote, If you have not seen Foucault in his white flannel pajamas, buttoned with frogs, sprawled leisurely on his divan or in a commodious armchair, enjoying a tasty liverwurst sandwich, washing it down with a high-grade champagne, reading a luxuriously bound edition of Aristophanes, then you have never seen a man really enjoying himself. Somehow, Charles managed to graduate. His cavalry unit was deployed to Algeria, then part of the French Empire in Africa. At Setif, in the center of modern Algeria, Charles was bored. When he caused a minor scandal by sneaking a woman he was living with into the officer quarters, the commanding officer told Charles he would have to choose between her and his military career. Charles laughed and said he chose the girl and took her on vacation to Switzerland. But then, after Charles had left the military with an extremely dishonorable discharge, things changed in Algeria. A local tribe had risen in revolt. Suddenly, the men Charles had trained with were fighting for their lives. Leaving them there alone no longer seemed like a joke. Charles de Foucault had been happy to get out of the military, but now he desperately wanted back in. Such things were possible for the very well-connected, and after calling in many favors, he was once again made an officer. He bought a pocket edition of the plays of Aristophanes, and he was sent back to Algeria. To everyone's surprise, Charles turned out to be an excellent officer. He was fearless. He treated the men under his command with deep kindness and care. By the time the rebellion was over, and 
French Algeria was peaceful again, Charles de Foucault had gained the respect of his fellows in the French officer corps. The fighting had let Charles prove himself. But now it was over and he was bored again. He wanted another adventure, and he came up with a plan. He would explore Algeria. He figured that if the French government helped him, he could improve their geographical knowledge as he traveled. But the government turned him down. It was too dangerous and complicated. The trouble was, the danger was the draw for Charles de Foucault. And so, Charles went north, to Algiers on the coast of the Mediterranean. In the library, he started to learn Arabic, and worked out the rest of the plan. The librarian had put him in touch with Rabbi Mordecai. Charles learned that Mordecai had traveled all over the African continent. He had been fantastically rich, at the head of a trading empire, and then he had lost it all. Now, he was trying to get it back with one last roll of the dice, through alchemy. The alchemists claimed that their art could uncover the ultimate instrument of transformation, the philosopher's stone. This would let a man turn base metals into gold, or turn his old decrepit body into that of a healthy youth. Mordecai thought he was close to that formula, but first he needed supplies. He wanted them so desperately that he was willing to help Charles de Foucault with his mad plan. Charles de Foucault was not allowed to tour Algeria. Well, no one had said anything about Morocco. And why would they? At the time, Morocco was not part of France. The Moroccans, who had a well-founded fear of French annexation, strictly limited the Europeans allowed into their country. As a result, there were no maps of Morocco to be had. The penalty for sneaking into the interior was death. The penalty for spying, for example by making an illegal map, was also death. Charles de Foucault was going to do both of these things. And since he couldn't enter Morocco as himself, he would sneak in with Mordecai, pretending to be a Jew. Charles de Foucault and Rabbi Mordecai found their way into Morocco from the port city of Tangier on the Mediterranean coast. Charles already had his map-making supplies, including a compass and a sextant to take readings. In Tangier, the two adventurers bought mules and supplies and set out inland. As they went, Charles slowly figured out how things worked in Morocco. He improved his grasp of the language. He got used to gauging who really had the power in a region and figuring out how to buy that man's protection. From Tangier they went south, toward Fez. In Fez, they found a trade caravan and joined it, headed further south into the Zahara. Charles concealed a little writing pad in the palm of it one hand and had the stub of a pencil in another. As he walked, he made notes on anything he thought would fit into his report. When stopping for the night, he took readings with his compass. He needed to be higher up to use the sextant, 
so that was a bit trickier. When he was staying in a house, Charles often snuck up to the roof with the sextant, while Mordecai kept watch. One time, he was caught. The witness demanded to know what Charles was doing. With a sudden inspiration, Charles said that he would be happy to explain. The problem was that he had contracted the infectious disease of cholera. Now, some people said that one should see a doctor, but Charles wasn't falling for that trick. No, no, no. The true cure to cholera, Charles explained to the increasingly nervous witness, was up there in the stars. He was going to figure it out and find an astrological cure. The witness backed away slowly, and Charles slipped the sextant back into a pocket inside his robes. As Charles de Foucault traveled through Morocco, he was noticing something about the people. He had been seeing it since he had been a cavalry officer. The people here were unapologetically, sincerely, Islamic. They reminded Charles of the great Christians of the past. Why was it possible to live a religious life here, but not at home? Charles read the Koran, but it didn't impress him. Still, he envied their ability to believe. Most of the time that Charles was in Morocco, his rabbi disguise worked well. In one town, Charles and Mordecai were invited to dinner with the local lord. As they talked, the lord said that he would love to visit France. Charles cautiously speculated that such a thing might be possible, and who knew? Perhaps one day Frenchmen would visit Morocco as well. The lord smiled and, in a conspiratorial tone, said that he had heard this had already taken place. He had even heard that these clever Frenchmen had disguised themselves as Jews. Charles swallowed and waited for the guards to burst in and arrest him. But instead, the local lord gave him a letter for the French government, in case he should happen to run into a representative of this government on his travels. Charles and Mordecai traveled south into the Zahara, toward the border of modern Morocco and Algeria. In Tassint they turned west, and headed back toward the coast. As they got closer to the border with French Algeria, rumors began to catch up with them. People said that Charles was a secret European, and carrying gold. Charles and Mordecai hurried toward the border. At the last minute, their escorts turned on them. But fortunately, they only wanted the gold, not to turn them in as spies. And so, Charles and Mordecai, beaten and robbed, limped over the border into French Algeria. Back in Algeria, Charles began to put his notes together in a book. Mordecai took his fee and bought alchemy ingredients. Though, unfortunately for him, they would bring him neither wealth nor health, and the toxic gases he released would prove fatal within the year. Meanwhile, Charles returned to France and published his notes as the first geographical survey of Morocco. It was a sensation. In 1885, 
Charles received a gold medal from the French Geographical Society, who enthused that, thanks to the Viscount de Foucault, we have begun a truly new era in Moroccan geography. Charles de Foucault was 25 years old. He was now one of the most famous gentleman adventurers of his day. He was the talk of Paris. This was success. Or at least it looked like success from the outside. Charles himself was puzzling over questions of faith. He was still thinking about the real faith of the Muslims he had met. Now that he was back in France, he looked for that same sincerity of faith and realized it had been right under his nose all along. His cousin, Marie, was living a quiet but authentic Catholic life. When he asked questions, she helped him find a priest to talk to, Father Houvelin. Charles de Foucault had religious questions, and was hoping that answers would come to him as easily as things often did. He half-heartedly prayed for revelation, and found none. Later, Charles would use this period of his life as a lesson in what not to do in search of faith. Jesus says, Come and see, Charles explained to a friend. We all want to jump right to the seeing, but that is not how things work. First, we have to figure out how to get there. Charles got there through repeated conversations with his cousin and the priest, Father Houvelin. One night he couldn't sleep, and in the morning he went to the church of Father Houvelin. He wanted to ask the priest more questions, but the priest was hearing confessions, and so Charles slipped into the confessional just to let the priest know he was there and wanted to talk. Father Houvelin recognized the moment for what it was, and told Charles to make his own confession. And so, to his own surprise, after twelve years, Charles's confession came pouring out. And then, the moment he stepped out of the confessional, he saw what he was being called to do. He suddenly found he had a vocation to become a monk. Father Houvelin became Charles's spiritual advisor. The priest, well aware that Charles had explored Morocco on impulse, encouraged Charles to consider this vocation carefully before he jumped into it. But over the next three years, the sense of vocation did not go away. At Father Houvelin's suggestion, Charles made a pilgrimage to Palestine. Passing through Nazareth, he sensed the detail of his vocation. He was being called to imitate Christ, like all Christians. But, for Charles de Foucault, the call was to imitate Christ in his life in Nazareth, before his ministry began, when for thirty years God lived and worked among us, all but unnoticed by the world. Charles began his journey into this obscurity by joining the Trappist order. The monks lived in silence, working with their hands and praying. Charles de Foucault entered as a novice. The abbot asked him what he could do. Foucault could do many things, command a unit, 
map a foreign land, write a book. But in this place of labor and prayer, he realized he knew nothing. The abbot handed him a broom. Charles de Foucault, or Brother Marie Alberic, as he became, was a Trappist for five years. After five years, Trappists must choose to take permanent vows or leave the order. Charles loved the discipline of monastic life, but wanted even more austerity than the Trappists provided. Even worse, the Trappists came up with the wild idea that he should become a priest. Charles went back to Nazareth, living as a beggar, and eventually finding work as a porter and gardener at a convent there. He lived in a tool shed, and finally had the unnoticed hermit's life he wanted. The trouble was, the more the nuns of the convent got to know him, the more they admired him. Soon they were pressing him to become a priest, and reluctantly, Charles went and completed the studies that were necessary. After he became a priest at 42 years old, Father Charles de Foucault requested permission to live as a hermit. He knew where he wanted to be, in the Zahara Desert. He settled in an oasis, but when the frontier moved as the French Empire absorbed the Tuareg people, Charles de Foucault moved his hermitage even further out. It was now 400 miles away from the nearest French fortress. Out in the desert, Charles hoped to start a new monastic order. He wrote down rules for his austere way of life, though the only monk who ever came out found the rule so difficult that he grew sick and had to leave. Instead, the poor came to see Brother Charles of Jesus, as he became known. They came all the time, knocking on his door to ask to stay the night for food, for prayer. Brother Charles would put up strangers, feed them, and patch their clothes while they slept. When slaves came to him for sanctuary, he tried to buy their freedom with what he had. Brother Charles's move to the region of Taman Rasset to live among the veiled warriors of the Tuareg was difficult at first. It didn't help that it was common knowledge that the French turned into animals at night and ate children. But as the years passed, Brother Charles of Jesus became a beloved figure. A doctor visited him for some months in 1910, watching Brother Charles working with his hands helping those who needed it, refusing help to those who just wanted a handout, and getting consulted by locals who wanted the hermit to judge their disputes. In his home at night, Brother Charles was still a man of science, creating a Tuareg dictionary, a Bible translation, and preserving any Tuareg poems and proverbs he could find, like, The beetle, in its mother's eyes, is a gazelle. Familiarity, the doctor wrote, often breeds contempt, and many great men turn out to be not so great when you live with them. Brother Charles of Jesus proved that the opposite could be true 
He seemed like an unimportant man until you spent time with him, and then you realized that he was a great man. In 1914, the world lurched into the First World War, which turned out not to be a scientific impossibility, after all. In Algeria, the war unleashed a push for independence. The French worried about the safety of Brother Charles of Jesus. Since he refused to take shelter with them, they came down and built a fortress, big enough that all the Tuareg could take shelter in it. It was this attempt to help which, probably, caused what happened next. In December of 1916, a group of men came to rob the fort. Brother Charles was there alone. The men told him they were military messengers, there to deliver the mail, which he had been expecting, and when he opened the door, they stormed in. Brother Charles was tied up as they ransacked the fortress, stealing guns and food. He knelt down in prayer, watched over by a boy with a rifle. Perhaps the raiders meant to take Brother Charles with them as a hostage after they left. But as it happened, they were interrupted by the actual military messengers. Everyone started shooting. The boy in charge of guarding Brother Charles panicked and shot the priest in the head. The hermit's death surprised everyone. The French rode out to seek vengeance on the raiders. So did the Tuareg warriors. And the world began to evaluate the strange life of the Viscount, who had become a hermit. In one way, he had accomplished nothing. Brother Charles had never found anyone to join his order, although the order would grow after his death. But in another way, Brother Charles of Jesus had lived his life in answer to his original question. Could there still be great men of faith in a time of science? Or did a real man have to acknowledge that there was nothing to this world beyond matter in motion? Three days before his murder, Brother Charles wrote in his journal that now, as he celebrated the Mass alone in the desert, it was so obvious that here, before him, was real being. And all around him, this transitory world was empty, pale, and bordering on nothingness.